welcome to episode 444 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. Righto, team, welcome along to episode 444 of I Am Talk with coach John Newsom and Bevan James Isles. Admittedly, it's only Bevan James Isles in the studios right now. Uh, we are on our holiday. It's, I'm actually recording this a couple days before Christmas, just straight after we did the show for 443. But we're just going to get a couple shows out to you guys over the next couple weeks. And, uh, you know, we've got a long tradition of never missing a week and the whole time we've been doing the podcast and uh, I know a couple times we have done a couple kind of recap shows but uh, you know we kind of like the fact we haven't done that and ideally it'd be cool to get to 10 years without ever missing a show and so over the Christmas season what we do is we release a couple shows a little bit of um, different stuff or stuff we haven't done before and so today what we're going to be doing is we're actually going to be releasing or you know the interview that we did with Jackie Gallagher on um, Legends of Triathlon and obviously we lost Jackie this year to the unfortunate death um, and we just thought it would be really cool to put her interview back on and, and just for you guys to have a listen to remember who this person was and uh, her amazing story because as you'll get to hear she really is or was a, a very phenomenal woman and it's very sad to see you know she, the way she lost her life and how she lost her life so we thought we'd chuck that up and that comes from the legend show so some of you may listen to that and, and some of you may not have but check it out it's a really cool interview and it's again pretty insightful before we get into it i'll just quickly talk about one of the sponsors we have athlinks.com social networking for endurance athletes guys if you've listened to the show for a long time you know you'll hear john and i talk about athletes every week and it really is a tool that helps you keep the memory of your sport in place. What you do is each week, each time you do a race, you just get into the habit of once you get home, you go into Athlinks, you find the race, you put your race results in Athlinks, and then forever you have this ongoing record of you know the, the results that you've had. And it's actually interesting thinking about the interview we did with Jackie. And before we did the interview with Jackie, Jackie sent us her a spreadsheet, and she had kept a record of every race that she'd ever done as an athlete. Like, seriously, it was mind-blowing to look through this record. I'm pretty sure we'll probably talk about it in the interview. So um, it really was just a very, very kind of awesome kind of spreadsheet to have. And if you are someone who races a lot and you have this athletic career, you know, you'll, you'll have those key races that you'll remember forever, but there'll be a lot of races that you won't remember. And that's why going on athletes and creating that habit of putting your results in, you'll be like Jackie and you'll have that kind of race result that you'll be able to look back on in the future in a way that kind of remembers the now in a really cool way. So it's a cool way to use Athlinks. So check it out, athlinks.com for all your results and social kind of aspect of your sports performance. You know, guys, we're going to get straight into the interview with Jackie. So here's Jackie right now. I'm going to leave whatever advertising we had in the show from Legends because, to be honest, I haven't got time to, to edit it out. So I imagine we'll probably be promoting Blue 70 and Tanya Pora sometime throughout the show. Um, but here we go. Here's Jackie Gallagher. So, John, this week we've got on the show, or this month on the show, we have a lady who 
to be honest, I hadn't actually heard of before you sent through the notes for the show, but it sounds like she was a bit of a bit of a guru in a day. Your request last month was to get a female, yeah, female pro yeah, athlete. Because we've got a lot of guys, but we haven't and got that many chicks yet. So I have delivered. So Jackie Fairweather used to be known as Jackie Gallagher before I was getting married, and she was part of the Aussie domination era, both across male and female triathlon and Olympic distance. So these days, so much of our sport is about Ironman. In the 90s, it was much, well, I was involved in short, short course stuff, but it was much more around short course racing. The World Cup circuit was pretty, pretty successful. And a lot of the big names were short course athletes, whereas these days, it's a bit of a mix of, bit mm-hmm. of, a mix of both. But she was a dominator. Um, she, she crossed boundaries from running to duathlon and triathlon, winning world championship medals at triathlon and duathlon, both at the short course. And also... Then once she retired, she became a runner. And, uh, yeah, and we'll talk about that with her because yeah. there's some interesting stuff there, isn't there? And, and, and also, um, as you would say, a bit of a brainiac, you know, yeah. uh, got, a, got a nice degree there and then went into the administration of the sport as well. So I think it just gives, you know, just a nice rounded um, career in terms of athletic, athletic career and also on the administration side. So we're going to hear plenty more now from Jackie Fairweather. Okay, let's chuck it on. Okay, um, today we have one of the Australian icons of triathlon. Um, during the 90s, as I said in the intro, uh, we had just a whole swagger of amazing athletes coming out that really dominated, uh, especially short course triathlon. And one of those is today's guest, which is Jackie Fairweather. During the, the 90s, she was known as Jackie Gallagher. Uh, she won the World Triathlon Champs in 96 and in the same year also won the World Duathlon Champs. Got three other silver medals from World Tri Champs uh, and another gold medal at the World tri- uh, Duathlon Champs in 1999 and more recently well <laughs> still 11 years ago also managed to switch over to running and actually got a bronze medal at the Manchester mm. Commonwealth Games so pretty legendary stuff but also has got the insight of being on the other side of the table being involved in high performance sport in Australia through the Australian Institute of Sport coaching and uh, just a general legend so welcome along the show Jackie. Thanks John. Um, we, we always start the show in a, in a similar sort of way we, we you know a lot of people out there always like to know where where athletes have come from so can you can you fill us in a bit about your upbringing and, and your involvement in sport from from sort of the, the younger years? Yeah I was actually um, not very sporty at all as a kid um, in primary school, I always joked that sport was the only thing I wasn't good at, so I had to um, I had to find a way to be good at it. That was the challenge, and nothing else was challenging enough. So, yeah. uh, my um, you know, I come from a family that was always interested in sport. I mean, Australian family. You yeah. know, my dad, my dad is a walking encyclopedia on on cricket stats, and <laughs> certainly follows all the football codes. So, um, yeah, he's he's always been pretty into it, and, and I was the oldest child, so I was my dad's girl, and. Um, is it, uh, I think at first I was a disappointment, as I say, because I just really wasn't very good at sport. But um, tried everything as a kid, and probably um, the first major thing I won, my big breakthrough, if you like, was I won the high jump at school carnival in, in grade five. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> and uh, that was quite a that was quite an achievement. I remember there was this one girl that you know you always have somebody that that you're that you always clash with at school and there was this one girl and we used to always clash and she was good at sport she was a good runner and and um, I made the finals for the high jump and she teased me all week saying oh you'll be hopeless you know you'll you'll be the first knocked out and 
when I won, I remember yelling across the oval, sucked in, Caroline, I won. <laughs> so that was my first gracious, gracious victory. <laughs> as, as, I mean, I know we're sort of fast-forwarding a bit, bit quickly here, but as you became, you know, an amazing athlete and, and obviously got some, some recognition on the world stage through winning t- titles, and, and that was obviously later on in life, but did that... Did that change the, the family dynamic at all? You know, if your dad's just a sporting nut and he's probably not enjoying your cricket team very much at the moment, but did, did that change things in, in, in a family setting? Oh, no, not really, I don't think. I mean, my dad's always been pretty understated. I mean, he was – I grew up with um, with a very uh, sort of sarcastic upbringing. You know, I'd say – I remember saying, Dad, am I pretty? And he said, yeah, pretty ugly. You know, I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was more that kind of Irish-English sarcastic upbringing and – you know, it was kind of, oh yeah, you're doing pretty well, but but you know, you still you still got to have a positive mental attitude, or you know, he's always giving advice and, um, but you know, I mean, he, my dad was one of those people who would never, never directly give you, um, you know, real the, the kudos or tell you how how good you were, but he'd be telling everybody else behind my back how proud he was. So yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, in regards to as a child, you're saying you weren't that good at sport, but you you definitely had a desire to be good at sport. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, I would try anything. Um, I just, I think, as a young kid, I wasn't particularly coordinated. Um, I was a bit chubby. I was like, I remember in primary school, you know, you had the hundred meter races, and I was the second slowest in my class. I just, mm. <laughs> just was no good. Yeah. Um, but you know, as I got a bit older and um, got into distance running at age about thirteen or fourteen, and I still wasn't great. I, I sort of. My impression of myself, and certainly when I meet people now that knew me as a teenager would say the same thing, is, is you know, I wasn't that good, but I used to just really try hard. I was really determined. I keep coming back. You know, I just was always looking for ways to improve. And, and you know, I mean, I still never think of myself as having been a really talented athlete, but I just had a real hunger to find ways to be better. And I was always curious about how other people did things and, and why they were better or you know, I was just always driven by improvement and, and finding ways to, to you know, be faster or, or you know, I was, I was always the thinking person's athlete, I guess. I was always, uh, you know, searching for, for better ways. One, one thing that fascinates me, and, and, and I've got a huge amount of uh, respect and envy for you in doing this in terms of your the keeping of your records, because one of our sponsors on our, our other shows is a website called athlinks.com, which is where you can go and you know, it basically stores all your results from all different races around the place. And, and I started racing in about 1990, and um, you know, I, I, I can remember a lot of my races, but I don't have the stats there to to back up those memories but you started collecting your stats on both racing and training from it looks like about the age of 13 I mean what um what was the motivation for doing that and and um, I bet you're stoked you've done it yeah I don't know it's just uh, I never really thought about it I've just always been um always been a numbers girl like I've just I just love numbers I, I remember numbers all the time and um you know for example here's a really stupid stat but I know as of today um, I've been alive 16,699, in fact, days today. No joke. <laughs> 16,700 tomorrow. Nice. So, <laughs> so just... just crazy things like that. But, but yeah, like I've always – I've got my training diaries uninterrupted from 1982. Wow. Every single day is accounted for. Um, and it's a nice little journal of life, like – yeah, it's all my training in there and it's all my races in there. And, and sometimes, you know, like through the triathlon years, the training is really very detailed. Mm. Um, but, you know, these days it's, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll 
put general stuff in there. So, like, I know when I was in different places or, you know, I've just been in Tasmania for a couple of days. So, that's in there that I was in Tasmania. And just, if I was ever going to write my memoirs, it's mm. all there in the training diaries. Mm. So, when, when, you know, at school you started running and you started to kind of become, you know, an, better at sport. At what, what point did you go, actually, I'm a competitive athlete? I was always a competitive athlete. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually getting results maybe is a bit yeah, good at it, yeah. Um, I think sort of during high school, I was at a um, private school, so I wasn't in the public school's athletic system, yep. but was in was in a club um, from sort of – I joined Little Athletics at about – after I won that high jump, about, about age 11. Um, so I think, um, I, you know, I, I would get a medal at state level – um, and then it wasn't until grade 10 that I made my first state team. So everything was, was quite – everything was quite a big step, you know. Like it was a big deal for me to make that first state team. And I remember mm. it was to a um, national cross country and, you know, my parents didn't have the spare cash to fund me to go from Sydney to Brisbane for this event and my school fundraised for it, you know. Oh, wow. I mean, that was, that was the way it was back then. That was what you did. And, you know, again, my first um, – national team I was you know I was on the fringe for quite a while in fact just before I got into triathlon so through my universities I was sort of on the fringe of selection for for a national team in running and just couldn't quite get there and it wasn't until I started training for triathlon that my running improved and I made a national team but my first running um, world's team was world cross country in um, 93 and again you know I had to come up with fifteen hundred dollars for it and it was it was a big deal and I didn't have the money you know and ended up making a deal with the coach of the Queensland Academy of Sport that if I got top 75 at world cross country he'd reimburse me half the amount 750 (laughs) so you know that was the goal then was to get top 75 and I came back and you know I did get top 75 and you know sort of went with cap in hand for the 750 dollars and and the director of the Queensland Academy of Sport at the time says, oh, he didn't have the authority to make that deal with you. Um, oh, no. So I, I had to convince her that, he, you know, he needed to keep his word and I needed the money. Yeah. Awesome. And did you get the money? Yeah. Nice. <laughs> nice. Yeah, um, and she still, she still remembers me being as, you know, being persuasive and getting the money. But another funny thing that I, I used to do was, um, you know, you, you'd, my mum would always make me hang the washing on the line and I had this routine where – I'd hang all the blue clothes up with blue pegs because that was New South Wales, so that was when mm. I wanted to represent the state. And I'd hang up all yellow clothes with green pegs and green clothes with yellow pegs to represent Australia. So it just, you know, <laughs> always in my mind that was what I wanted to do. And, um, you know, just things as silly as colours of pegs mattered. Wow. <laughs> so, so for you, it really it really started with running and then it seemed to morph a bit into duathlon and, and then came triathlon. Is that sort of the progression? And maybe explain why why you made those changes. Um, yeah, well, um, when I went to uni, I, I guess, uh, was exposed to triathlon for the first time. I did a human movements degree at the University of Queensland, so sports science. Yep. Um and that was in the, the late – I started in 87 um, and went along to the Noosa Triathlon. A couple of my friends from uni w- were doing this and I didn't even know what triathlon was. So went along and had a look at that and um, I was still really running and I didn't really think of going to triathlon but I'd had some Achilles problems. I started to get some Achilles problems with um, f- through my running um, and 
so I, I bought a bike and a lot of the guys at uni cycled so I started getting into cycling um just just to something different and, and I was using it to commute as well because I didn't have a car you know poor uni student as you were mm. and so just there was a bit of a culture of triathlons and cycling and I got into that and I found I was immediately good at cycling because I was I was strong and I loved the tactics and you know I had um Liz Heppel was was um her husband ran the bike shop at uni and Liz Heppel was a bit of a legend well a triathlete as well but cyclist and she she just come off um you know the women's t- Tour de France and you know the Olympics for cycling all that kind of thing. So, you know, I had a good friend and mentor in Liz. I helped her with her running. She was getting back into triathlon. She helped me with my cycling, and um, yeah, I started doing some duathlons then. So that was sort of the late, the late, the late eighties. Mm. So, um, when did it start to become? You know, obviously you're, you're at uni then, and 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 it looks like you had some some pretty instant success at you know triathlon and duathlon. I mean. Um, at what stage did it come for you to become, uh, you know, either a, a semi-professional career or and, and then sort of moving into to a professional career? Yeah, well, the duathlons, yeah, I did have instant success, and my my um my race plan was to run as hard as I could the first run, get a lead, and hang on. <laughs> that was really what it was all about, and I just would cane myself the first run. I didn't care about saving myself, and that was always my duathlon philosophy right through my whole career. And a lot of people didn't look at it that way which I think is why I was so good at duathlon I'd just kill myself the first run and then you know keep the pain up Mm. (laughs) Um, I went to the US in 1991 and did a master's degree over there Um, I did honours at UQ and then went over and did a master's and um, when I was there I started doing a bit of swimming because I was I was actually one of the jobs I could get to you know keep keep enough money for food on the table was was um, looking after the pool because I had, you know, life-saving accreditation, which I was in the Midwest in the US and nobody did. Mm. Um, anyway, came back in early 92, went to track nationals and um, ran the 3K and 10K. And that was where I met Brett Sutton. Um, he was coaching a lady called Jenny Lund who'd just run a 31.56 for 10K to qualify for the 92 Olympics. Wow. Um and she'd been a friend of mine from running, and I came fifth behind her at, at uh, nationals in '92. Um, I think she lapped me twice, so I was a fair way behind her. But I think around about 35, 35-20 or something. Um, and anyway, Brett came up to me after that race, and he said, um, "You're overweight. You're unfit." But that was one of the gutsiest runs I've ever seen. Yeah. I want to train you for triathlon. I think I can make you a champion. Really? That was, that was literally what he said. And I was like, oh, my God, who is this guy, you know? Yeah. Um, and he said he'd seen me in duathlon. He knew I could ride a bike. Um, and he'd been a swim coach and, and he could, could coach me. Um, and, and then he said, oh, what are you doing tomorrow? And I said, well, I, I'm having two weeks off. I always have two weeks off after nationals. He said, how can you have two weeks off when you're not even fit? <laughs> um, he said, I'll, I'll, I'll be there in the morning and take you for a run. I'm like, I'm not going for, you know, take you for a long run. This was a day after a 10K on the track. Yeah. Um, and I was like, well, no, I'm having a rest. But sure enough, six o'clock the next morning, there he is, bashing down the door. Um, it took me three months to decide. Like, he just wanted me to fully commit. He was like, you can be a triathlete. Um, you know, I, I can make you good. Move down the Gold Coast all that kind of thing. And, you know, I mean, I've just come off two postgrad degrees. I was on an academic stream. You know, this was early 90s. You didn't just give everything away, move down the coast um, and become a full-time athlete. You just didn't do it. Like, mm. you know, all my friends were 
think and I had rocks in my head even thinking about it. I had no money. Mm. Um, I was in debt $1,500 for a $2,000 car <laughs> and he wanted me just to come down the coast and go on the dole, you know, because that's what people did and it was it was a really big decision and, and Rena um, Hill mm. was there at the same time. She was rooming with me at that Nationals and she got in on the conversation and said, oh, what can you do for me? Um, and for her, she had no hesitation, her, you know, her – she was a dental work as a dental nurse. Um, her running had stagnated. It, it was an easy, you yep. know, there wasn't much else, you know, for her she to decide. She didn't have a life, yeah. And and um, it was in fact um, one of the guys that was studying his PhD at the time, Peter Rayburn, um, who helped me make the decision in the end. He said, Jackie, you know, how old are you? You know, you're 23. You've got an education. Um, you've always wanted someone to tell you you had talent. Um, here's your opportunity. You know, give it six months. You've always got, an, a, you know, your education to fall back on. And, you know, you can work for another 40 years. You've got another 40 years of working life. Um, and so that was it. And and so I, I moved down the coast and I committed. And for me, once I make a decision, I don't look back. I, I take my time to make the decision, but then I fully commit. And that was what I did. So I moved to the coast. I did take a part-time job for the first two years. I worked for a respiratory position. I did all this testing, mm-hmm. um, much to Brett's. Brett's chagrin, he didn't didn't like that at all. Um, <laughs> but I wasn't gonna go on the dole. Mm-hmm. And and then from then on it was it was business too. Like I couldn't afford I literally couldn't afford not to make money in races. Really? So I didn't I I, I never lost I never had a, a race that I didn't make money on. I didn't at least break even on. So um that was it. So what was it like in that first period? So you you go you go you go you know from this kind of academic life to then suddenly having a bit of work, but kind of being the full time athlete. And under Brett, we know Brett likes to work as athletes pretty hard. What was what was that first period like as an athlete? Yeah, it was a bit of a culture shock. <laughs> um, I went from I mean I was pretty conservative as a runner, and, and looking back, I know why I wasn't reaching my potential because I just wasn't doing enough. But um, yeah, I went from running fifty sixty k a week to you know, swimming 20, which killed me at that stage, um, running 80, 90 and, and um, you know, cycling two or 300. So it was certainly um, certainly pretty different. I, I was glad I had that, that part-time work. It just balanced things in those mm. early days. Yep. Um, but, you know, I mean, I had, you know, Brett had great belief in me, which was amazing because, as I said, I never thought of myself as a particularly talented athlete, but I knew I was determined. And I loved the, I loved the training. I loved working hard. And, you know, the improvements came straight away, particularly with my running. And that was, uh, you know, a big bonus. And I don't know, it, it sort of all happened really quickly, but I, I'm pretty, pretty focused, pretty determined, pretty intense person. And once I get into it, I get into it. And I really did. So, yeah. We'll go, we're going to go into Britain and coaching and stuff a little bit, bit later on. We'll just take a quick break and then we'll be back and, and start looking at uh, Jackie's, Jackie's pro career in a bit more detail. Sponsor, John. Tanya Pora Sports and Leisure Club. Oh, yes, tell me about it, John. Fantastic title sponsor of the show. I had an email the other day, Bevan, and... Uh, I get one. Yeah, just one. Wow, just that's, one a, that's a happy day, isn't it? <laughs> happy days. Uh, and it was from somebody local in Christchurch, and, and I think their pool was getting is getting closed down for a while, and they typically go somewhere for, for a swim camp. 
And oh, nice. Nadine Flower Power Voice actually sent nice. it through. And she said, oh, look, we normally go away on a swim camp into Australia. Or maybe, no, maybe the pool in Australia they normally go to is not open for whatever the reason was. She said, oh, I might check out Tanyapura. Nice. So definitely a good option. So, you know, if you've got, the, if you've got a, a group squad thing and you ever get, want to organise a group camp, then this is just an easy place. You can either do your own self-catered camp. You know, you can just go, right, we just want to fly and we just want accommodations and meals and we'll take care of, um, take care of our own training fantastic amazing pool space and then you've got all the other things on the side that you can be kicking off in in your spare time whether you be a triathlete or not you can go off and do running and biking but in terms of their swim facilities it's just incredible and that's why they have quite a few of the international teams turning up Mm, mm. Uh, so if if you are to want to do your own personalised group thing don't want to pay for for coaching or anything like that you just want somewhere to have yourself based these guys will be sorted out so, so check it out Great variety, um, and then I guess the other thing for for families as well. We, we we do harp on about this, but you know, if you want to go out do a morning's training, you've got enough things there to keep the family occupied in the morning, and an amazing place for you know go to an afternoon of activities. And I'm just thinking from you know from my perspective with kids and stuff, there'd be some fantastic things to do over in, in Thailand. In well, and it's also that even if you don't have you know the family aspect's massive, but like I don't well my daughter's sixteen and she probably won't want to come out on holiday with me nowadays. And and so you know like if Joe and I were to do a holiday just to somewhere like this, you know that I could there's not the guilt of oh I want to go out and do my training because there's plenty of things that Joe. You know, they've got the mind side, they've got the meditation, they've got the relaxation side of the Tanyapura Resort. And so, you know, I could go out and do like a four-hour bike ride in the morning. Joe could go do her own thing. And then in the afternoon, we could have some quality time together. But there's not that, you know, like I know that for a lot of athletes, holidays almost, it's a great thing, but it's also a stressful thing because we want to keep mm-hmm. our training up. And a lot of the, the, the stress about it is the guilt of having to move away from the, the partner or the family. Yep. But if you know that they have those activities that you know are going to keep them occupied and, and, and they don't need you there, and then you go get quality training and go do some rides with like Jürgen Zach or something like that, then that's going to be really valuable. And then you're still going to have that quality time with them. So it's a bit of a win-win, isn't it? It is. Yeah. So check it out, tanyapura.com, and make sure if you are making any inquiries at all, even if it's just a general inquiry, make sure you tell them you heard about it on the show. Firstly, because that's good for us, but secondly, it's good for you because you will get a, a discounted rate. So make sure you yeah, bring that up and check it out tanyapora.com you can't go wrong team okay let's get back to this interview right so we're back again with uh, Jackie Gallagher Jackie Fairweather um, as she's now known obviously your career you know you've got this spreadsheet which is just littered with um with basically podiums, there's, there's very few um, numbers which are, are two digits, um, and, and a lot of number ones. When it, one of the things that, that struck out for me was um, I looked through, and in, in 1992, I think I counted up. You raced 43 times. Now a lot of those were, were running races, but that's um, that seems like a lot of races in one year. Yeah, I love to race. Um, I just always have been a racer. Um, I probably. I didn't realise it was that many times. But, yeah, I guess I was combining. I was coming off being a runner and hadn't really let, let go of that and yeah. stood doing duathlons and really enjoyed those as well and then getting into the tries. So, yeah, that was a lot. But I was a much better racer than trainer, always was. And, you know, I mean, Rena and I were a great contrast in that way because she just had this amazing capacity to train. And when we first, you know, moved down the coast and started training with Brett, Rena was just – I just couldn't. It was frustrating how much she could absorb and she never seemed to get tired and she'd 
you know, flog me in training all the time. But then the funny thing is we get to a race and, and it, it would be reversed and she was the one that was frustrated because, I, you know, I'd gone from she was a better runner than, than I was to all of a sudden I was beating her in every running race. And it was it's just really interesting how different people train and then race and how they sort of respond to it. So, so why do you think what, – what about you made you – you know, the athlete who did perform as a racer and maybe, you know, I'm sure you trained hard, but why do you see yourself that way and what was what did you bring to it that made it work that way? I think partly, I mean, Brett used to always have this theory about uh, thoroughbreds and workhorses and that um, people who, you know, some people, thoroughbreds couldn't handle as much work, but they didn't need as much work to come up. Yep. Um, and, you know, I mean, I never saw myself as hugely talented, but he saw me as one of the most talented athletes he ever had because he said I was just a thoroughbred, you know. I just didn't need a massive amount of work. And, and you know, I'd get tired easily in training and I, I just couldn't handle the work that some others could. But, you know, freshen me up a little bit and give me a sniff of competition. And, you know, uh, that was how what I, what I thrived on. And, I mean, he used to always say that I spent 90% of my time 70% fit and then, you know, he could set his calendar by eight eight weeks out from World Champs because I'd turn up on the doorstep ready to train and, and you know, everybody else had, you know, I'd get to 90% and, and everybody else would lose 10% because they'd get nervous about it being World Champs, whereas I'd gained another 10% just because, yes, it's World Champs, let me at it. So, so, so when you look through, you know, um, the, the earlier part of your tri career, so sort of through the early part of the 90s, um, are there any real highlights in there for you? Because I know once we get sort of 95 onwards, then the, the sort of the world titles and a lot of um, international victories come. But is, are there many moments during those early 90s that, that really stand out for you as um, whether they were high profile races or just breakthrough performances that you remember really fondly? Um, that first National Series win in Canberra in uh, late 92, December 92, uh, that was a big one. I mean, I was always coming from a long way behind in the swim, particularly those early years. I was dreadful. Um, <laughs> and I was strong on the bike, but I wasn't able to make the most of it because I was, you know, the swim would take so much out of me. So it took me a while to put the three together. Um, and I was always, you know, storming through on the run. So that Canberra triathlon, I had two series back then, 1992, mm-hmm. and then four days later winning the Zadapec 10,000 metres, which is the biggest, you know, track 10K race in Australia. Oh, yeah. Um, that, was a, that was a pretty big deal. And I don't know, another funny story. Uh, so on the plane on the way home from Canberra with Brett, and I'd said to him I wanted to go down and run Zadapec. And he was like, well, you know, and, and then I wanted to have an easy week leading, you know, between it was four days between them or something. And he said, oh, well, you know, go down there and get a little fun run out of your system. And you know, he, was, he was quite disparaging about it. But he wrote me this note on the plane. And Brett loved writing notes to you, you know, hmm. and, and putting his philosophies down in writing. And it was along the lines of, you know, there was some other writing around it. But do you think you can be world champion in the following? Please tick yes or no. The first one was running. It's like, well, no, I'm never going to be world champion. Okay, no. And he revealed them one by one, you know. The next one was duathlon, yes or no. And, I mean, this is my first year in the sport. I thought, oh, well, if I'm ever going to be world champion, anyone, the one I got the chance in is duathlon. Okay, tick, yes. And then the last one, triathlon. And, as I say, my first year in the sport, and I'm like, God, I don't know. It's <laughs> um, a big call. and But I knew he wanted me to say yes, so I did tick yes. Um, and then it was like, okay, go and do the little fun run, get it out of your system. And I mean, it was that was amazing. That was so prophetic way back then. Was he was right? I did become world champion in triathlon and duathlon, and mm-hmm. 
not in running, obviously, but he did get quite excited after that race because I ran a lot faster than he thought I would. Um, and after that, he he had me training for um, the Zoffingen duathlon. He, that was that was the one he was going to – you got all excited. That was the one I was going to win next. <laughs> were, were you ever – like when you won that race, was it ever close to an Olympic qualifying time? Um, yeah, I probably – I think it was probably a B, quite close to B time. I don't know. I don't even remember. Like, it was, was just a big deal to was, win was, that. And, mm. and, you know, I was in my try outfit and, and, and it was just really good. Um, at that time, that was when, you know, running and cycling and swimming were thinking that triathletes were failed single sport athletes. Yeah. And it was just really good to come out as a runner who just started in triathlon, people weren't sure about it, but then to be able to show all the runners that, hey, I could I could still run, and in fact, I was running better. Um, so, yeah, that was a good one. Nice. So, 95 sort of seems to be a bit of a breakthrough year in terms of uh, really getting onto the, the international triathlon circuit as, as well as dominating um, plenty of races uh, in the, yeah, in, in internationally. Um, yeah. Was it was ninety five and, and obviously ninety six was awesome because you won a world title. But was that the time when you sort of started to get on top of your swim? And obviously, I guess a, a follow on question from that is ninety five. I think would have been would have been the first year of draft legal racing as well because Wellington was the last non drafting one. So, yeah, so was that when the swimming started to click and, and things started to happen a bit better on the triathlon front? Yeah, a few pivotal things. I mean, early on, I mean, it sounds like Brett comes up all the time, and in fact. My career with Brett, I was off and on with him. I was, I was less with him than not with him, but he was obviously very uh, influential in, in my career. But anyway, early on, right from that first year, 92, 93, he wanted me to go overseas, go to Europe in, in the you know, the European summers. And I just knew I wasn't ready. I mean, that first year, after that 92, 93, I mean, you, you point out how many races I did, I was exhausted. Mm, I no needed wonder. to stay <laughs> <laughs> Rena went overseas with him and did really well those first couple of years, but I sort of intuitively knew that I didn't want to take it too fast, um, so I did stay home. And, and it was interesting, and Brett actually stopped coaching through at least 94 and probably most of 95 too, I think. Um, but anyway, in early 95, I gave him a call. I'd been offered the opportunity to go over and race with a French club, um, and, you know, it was 30 grand contract or something was pretty good mm. um and, you know at that time you'd sort of jumped at that opportunity and but i just i wasn't sure and that was going to be my first time to go overseas and um we'd had the first of the formula one series and i'd done fairly well coming second to mckeely um and so anyway i had a discussion with brett about that you know do i go over and take this opportunity of racing in france or 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 not and again it was a real career changing conversation because he said okay you've got this is the time where you decide, do you want to be the best in the world or do you want to have a crack at being the best in the world or do you want to enjoy the triathlon lifestyle, go over there, you know, make some money, see Europe, do it that way. Mm. And, um, and I said, oh, well, I want to have a crack. And so he said, well, you know, go spend the winter at home, really work on your swimming and then get serious. And so I went and um, turned up at, to the pool with, with Dennis Cottrell. Um, you know, legendary swim coach um, turned up there after that conversation with Brett went and, and sort of said to Dennis, I want to swim with you. And Dennis didn't like triathletes. He thought they were all show and no go at that time. Mm-hmm. Didn't have any triathletes. Um, he had a very young Grant Hackett. He was about 14, I think, at the time. Wow. 
And uh, the very first session, I think we did eight 200s on a three-minute cycle. Yeah. <laughs> and I was coming in at 258. I think I did 255 for the first one, and the rest were 257, 258. But I made yeah. them. And uh, later on, he said to me that he was really impressed that I hung in there and made this session, but he didn't think I'd be back. Yeah. But um, but that was it. I swam with Dennis from then on, and yeah, that really did help my swimming. Yeah. So 95, um, I guess one race that stands out there is, is second to Karen Smyers and uh, Cancun. And, and, and I guess you maybe explain that race um, because it was the first draft legal world champs. And then also maybe uh, at that stage, I can't remember when they announced that the Olympics was going to be happening in Sydney, but if they had announced it then, were you starting to set your eyes on Sydney? Um, I don't remember thinking about the Olympics then. I don't, I don't know if it had been announced or not. Um, but, yeah, that 95 Worlds, uh, you know, the, the whole drafting coming in was a big deal and, and most people didn't like it. Um, I took the attitude, which I do with most things, is if, you know, if a rule changes, don't sit there and complain about it, just make it work for you. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, it, it, it was what it was and there was no going back and I could understand – actually, in fact, the Olympics had been announced mm-hmm. and I could understand – why they were doing it for the Olympics. I was I could understand how policing drafting was going to get harder and harder because the the competition was getting closer and closer and it was going to be kind of crazy. And I don't know, I just, it, to me, I was just going to make it work for me whichever way, you know, it didn't matter. Um, and, and for that 95 Worlds, I'd been training at home, I was running well, my swimming had gotten a lot better. Um, and I'd had a conversation with a good friend who'd, I like to have the evidence laid out. You know, I like to analyse what the possibilities are, have a race strategy, all that kind of thing. And um, I hadn't been training with Brett through that whole period, 94, 95. And, you know, I had this friend who said to me, Jackie, you're running so well. If you're not, if you don't make the first pack, you can run into top 10. Mm. And if you are in the first pack, anything can happen. You know, you can run with anyone and, and, and I remember saying to Bianca Van Wozik, you know, talking about it even before the race and saying, oh, I don't think I'm ready to win. And Bianca was like, Jackie, if you have the opportunity to win the World Championships, don't you dare let it go, you know. Mm. Um, but And so as the race panned out, um, Karen, um, Emma and I were probably three of the last ones out of the water that made that first pack. Yeah. Um you know, we're probably three of the strongest riders in the pack anyway, but, yeah, we, we had some work to do out of the water, but we made it up. And then I had a terrible transition from bike to run, absolutely terrible, really stuffed it up. And it uh, took me nearly 5K to catch the, the leaders, um, of which Emma was in there and, and Karen and three or four others. But because I had momentum and I was running faster than them anyway to catch them, me catching them split up the pack. And, yeah, it was only Karen that, that uh, held me off, so... Yeah, good. That was amazing. That was such a good atmosphere too. That race, Cancun, was just it was phenomenal. So, so was, was there? How did you feel after the race? Were you disappointed? Or were you over the moon? Like, or um, no, I was pretty satisfied. I mean, Karen, she did an awesome job. She'd come off winning Hawaii as well. I mean, she was yeah. in great shape. And you know, I mean, I got second three times at Worlds, and every time I felt like the person who beat me did a great job, and I could congratulate them. And you know that that was it was what it was. I mean, yeah, I was pretty satisfied with second, and I knew I, I knew I'd stuffed up that transition. But apart from that, I did the best I could, and you know, I got beaten by a better person on the day. Yeah. 
So, so 96, um, uh, Cleveland, I was actually there, I raced in the, the junior race that, that, um, that year, and I can't recall watching the women's race, I don't know whether it was on the same day as us or what the deal was, I remember watching the guys race and seeing uh, Lessing crush everybody and Luke Van Laird run through the pack a bit there, you, obviously you, you won that your first world title there and then three weeks later you went on to win the world duathlon champs in Italy, I mean w- was that the pinnacle of your career as far as you were concerned and, and how big a deal was it? Yeah, it was a big deal. I mean, 95, I was second in the F1 series. I was second in the national series. I was second in the Australian championships, second in the world championships to different people, you know, to, to McKeeley Jones and McCartney, Karen Smyers. So, I mean, there's lots of seconds, too many seconds, but it gave me the confidence that I could win. And I felt like I had the, the race and the ability on my day to beat any of those girls. Yep. I think all of those girls were pretty pretty daunting at the time and I think I was one of the few people who, who truly believed I could beat any of them and all of them um, I, I didn't feel like I had you know the confidence that, that any of them had um, you know I mean certainly Emma and McKeeley they always came across as just you know f- seeming like it was their right to be champion triathletes mm. um, you know I didn't feel like that but but yeah analytically I felt like I could I could beat any of them on the day so that was after that Worlds in 95, it finally was like, okay, I'm ready. I'm ready to go for it and, and to win it. Um, and so 96, um, I won the, the St. George um, Grand Prix Series, Formula One Series. It changed its name a few times, but I won that in a um, early on in the year, won the National Series, won the Australian Championships and, you know, really started to get a roll on. And it was around that time that Brett started, he was back coaching and, he approached me um, at the first first couple of World Cups of the year in Japan and said he wanted to coach me again and I wasn't sure, but he knew I was ready to win and he still hadn't coached a world champion yet. He was ready. Um, and he, Brett had – he could be – I mean, he was very – he was hard, obviously, and he could be quite negative. And, and I said to him, look, you know, he's really trying to convince me to come back and train with him and that, that – be with him was the right combination for us to be, you know, to climb that top step. And I said to him in the end, I said, I'll come back, but on my terms, and my terms are that the criticism is constructive. So I don't want you telling me I'm soft or I'm, you know, this or that. I'm hard enough on myself. You know, I can yeah. tell myself all that stuff. I want you to say, you know, your swim's not good enough because this is and this, and this is what we're going to do about it. So it was good because it was really good to be able to lay the groundwork and say, look, this is how I work. This is how I want you to work with me. And, yes, let's commit and let's do it. And so I didn't link up with him until eight weeks before Worlds after the, the World Cup in Drummondville. And then uh, we, we worked bloody hard for that last eight weeks. And I had, you know, I battled Achilles problems my whole career. And that time before that Worlds in 96 was the worst it was and I was I couldn't run every day I could only run every second day Um, I'd hobble the day in between but we worked out it didn't matter if I ran fast or slow I still couldn't run the next day so I was getting getting yeah so it was like fast every second day physio treatment almost every day Um, I was completely committed I knew I had worked if anybody was going to beat me they were going to have to have done an amazing job um Emma didn't know that. She didn't like that when it happened. <laughs> um, it took a, a it took a years probably to, for it to sink in that I actually did 
you know, did a better job than her. I mean, after after the race, you know, she told every, anyone that would listen that she'd lost it, not that I'd won it. Yeah. Oh, really? Um, but, you know, I knew that I had I had put in the work. And I think the one thing, though, that, that yeah, that was the pinnacle. And afterwards, I was like, now what do I do? And particularly because because of the pain I went through with my Achilles, um, and it ended up in both ankles, I mean, one worse than the other, but it seemed like winning a world title was just so hard that I didn't know if I could ever climb that mountain again. Oh, really? So it's well. And, and I mean, I got close again in, in 99, but, yeah, I think it, because of the Achilles, it was harder than it probably, or the perceived effort was probably harder than it should have been. It wasn't as enjoyable as it should have been, put it that way. Well, at the time, what was the relationship like with you and Navigil? Oh, let, let's hold that. For, I've got a oh. section on rivals later on. Oh, okay. Because okay. you've, you've opened up a few can of worms there with, with Brett and Emma Carney, and I'm, I'm really keen to get to that later on, but we'll, we'll go okay, on for I'll have to hold that thought. <laughs> hold that thought. So, so through sort of um, 97 and, and 99, it seemed like you got a pretty good roll on there, plenty of good results. Was there, there any sort of highlights during that period? Obviously, ninety nine. I mean, if we if we go up to ninety nine, then we talk about ninety nine a bit. Uh, ninety seven, I really struggled. I mean, I, I came out and won the national series clean sweep, but Emma didn't race it. McKeeley didn't race it. Um, but I um, I struggled. I really struggled with motivation in ninety seven um, and and purpose. And you know, I'd taken a break late ninety six for the Achilles to settle down, um, and went to the US in ninety seven. Tried to do some racing there, but was a bit overweight and not as fit as I could have been and yeah I sort of struggled through that year and it wasn't till right at the end of the year that I got my act together at Worlds and again that was another story in itself um but it was around that time that again I had a long conversation with Brett about well what what was I aiming for now and that you know let's go through the Olympics and that's really the pinnacle that's the only thing I've got left that I really want to still achieve and that having that that thought then about the Olympics was what refocused me and got me through the rest of my career, I guess. Um, what was, was the lack of motivation because you'd reached the pinnacle and after that moment it was kind of like, uh, I've kind of achieved? Or like, what, what was the lack of motivation? Yeah, I think it was that. It was, yeah, I've reached the, the pinnacle and that's all I'd ever dreamed of is, God, you know, if you told me at age 10 that I was going to be a world champion. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, it was it was great. There's still lots of great racing to do and that kind of thing. But, but, and and I guess it was also around the effort required to be at that level because, mm. of, as I said, with the Achilles and stuff, um, I wasn't sure if I could I could do that. But yeah, I mean, I just think I I have the greatest respect for people that continue to stay at the top. Yeah. You know, time after time, and keep that hunger going. Um, I, th- I think that's that's sort of an amazing. I mean, not that I didn't keep my hunger going, but it really is quite a challenge to come back from something that big that you've worked that hard for, you put that much physical and emotional energy into, mm. um, to then come back and go, okay, how do you top it? So, so ninety nine, you're um, you know, you're there's a year out from the Olympics, and um, when I look through your results there, you know, you had another world title at duathlon, awesome, um, and a second place at the World Triathlon Champs, which was held on that Formula One circuit in um, with Montreal. And but when I look at that, f- the top five girls were all Australians. Um, so I think I, uh, I can't remember off the top of my head who won. I think it was. Um, I think it might have been, yeah, Loretta Harris. 
and then you had uh, yourself in second, and you had Carney there and McKaylee Jones, and I think it was um, Joe, King. Joe King as well. Amazing top five. I mean, um, what what was sort of going on in '99, and and where were you at in terms of thinking right, the Olympics is next year, you know, um, and we can go into the selection stuff in a moment. But were you feeling really on top of things in '99? Well, the, the, things have changed a bit because, um, I mean, 98 was the biggest disappointment of my career, that Worlds, the Joe King one. Mm-hmm. Um, that was the one I really felt got away and that I'd stuffed up. Why? Um, well, I mean, it was the only time Joe had ever beat me out of the water and the only time she'd ever beat me in a race. I mean, not, not to take anything away from Joe at all, but um, I just I'd, – I'd come in late to Brett um, – Again, probably a bit overweight, not as fit as I could have been. <laughs> My usual story, 90% of the time, 70% fit. Um, come, I'd come in from the US and, and, and Loretta and Joe were training the house down. I mean, you know, you come to Brett and, and you, they're your training partners and they're the best in the world. Mm. You know, they were still young and, and coming up and still hungry and, you know, they, they were training the house down. And, and that was one of the times when Brett was giving me a hard time and there was lots of negatives, you know. It was like... Um, but I wasn't fit enough and I needed, you know, I needed to really get into shape. And he, I remember we were in Switzerland and, and he put a, a postcard of Swiss, of of cows, basically. On the oh, really? So this is you. Do you lose some weight? I'll cut the cows off one at a time sort of thing. So, um, which was, yeah, it was, he was right. Um, but, you know, the good thing was, you know, he always said to me, he said, Jackie, you can run fast carrying a bit of weight. But you turn up at a world championships fitter than you look the rest of the year, and everybody else gets scared. So mm. you know you get a mental advantage just doing that. And he was right. You know he never would tell me I needed to be really skinny or anything like that. But I certainly had, you know, a psychological advantage when I really turned up fit for worlds because by that time I had a reputation performing at worlds. Mm. So um, so yeah, I just went in and you know there was. He was always trying to g me up by telling me how good the other girls were going and how much I needed to lift. And I mean, he believed I could win that Worlds, but he did it in that probably that negative reinforcement way. And I, I just was always a little bit on the back foot going into that Worlds. And <coughs> and in hindsight, I could have won it. And I made a tactical mistake in the swim. The men swam the day before, and I allowed a couple of the guys to get in my head and change my pre-race plan, which I should never have done. Um, had a terrible swim and then spent the whole rest of the race playing catch up. Hmm. Got off the bike in about a hundred and fifty millionth place <laughs> and, and ran into sixth. And I had equal fastest run time with Joe. Okay. So you know, I was it was awesome. You know, running running into into sixth. But I was my my best friend at that time, or still for many years, Liesl Moore or Liesl Mars as she was at the t- No, Liesl Moore. She was Liesl Moore at the time. Um, she raced for South Africa in the Olympics and she came, she was the last finisher in that world champs. Yeah. And we went and had a two-week holiday afterwards and she was fine with it. I was the one that was, you know, in the depths of despair and, you know, she goes, Jackie, snap out of it. I was the one that came last. She came sixth. <laughs> so, like, so, anyway, that was, uh, that was 98. So, 99 was about turning all that around and, and, I was just running really well in 99 and swimming well. Um, so, yeah, that was probably – but Loretta and Barb Linquist and, and – um, uh, Probably Nicole know, Hackett maybe. Nicole Hackett starting to come through. They were really changing the game then. You know, it really was becoming that, that swim-bike um, combination that, that was really upset the, the apple cart and, you know, McKeeley – 
Joe, uh, Joe um, Emma and I really had to work hard to, to make up the deficit. And that was exactly what happened at 99 Worlds. There were six off the front. Loretta was the only one that held on. I broke away from the big pack straight away. I was running really well. I was running her down. She was the only one I didn't catch. I was away from the others. Um, Emma and McKeeley had a sprint finish for – well, Emma, McKeeley and Joe had a sprint finish for third, fourth, fifth. So let's go one year down the track to 2000. The Olympics are coming up. The Australians, you guys have got a history of managing to Stuff completely up. cock up the selection process and protests all over the place. It seems like every Olympics this happens. So maybe run us through, you know, your 2000 year from your perspective. You know, you're a, a big time performer. Your big races roll around. You're on it, and obviously they, they end up going with um, Michaela Jones got a medal, Loretta Harrop and um, Nicole Hackett, and and yourself and Emma Carney who. I don't know. You probably argue you guys were the, the form athletes in the, in the previous previous years. Or um, what, what happened in two thousand for you? And um, is you know, I know Carney put in protests and there was lawsuits and stuff. What, what was your story? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh, look, it was it was always going to be difficult. I mean, that we had five five girls who who had all been world champion. You know, in, mm. in Loretta McKeeley, Emma, myself, and Joe, and then. Nikki Hackett coming up and, and believing that she had the right to be there, and, and rightfully so. So, you know, it was always going to be hard. You know, six into into three just doesn't go. <laughs> um, you know, for me, like Loretta had had been clear number one in, in 99. I'd been clear number two. Um, I really believed they couldn't have designed a better course for me than Sydney. I mean, it was wetsuit swim, hilly bike, hilly run. Thank you very much. Um, I, I was going there to win. That was that was it. That was all I wanted to do in my career. You know, finish off to to win in Sydney. Um, but for me personally, I I totally undid myself. Like I just went crazy. I just decided that you know the level I'd been at wasn't enough, and I was I I told Brett I wasn't going to train with him. I was going to do it my own. I wanted nobody's nobody to take responsibility except for myself. Um, and I just. I just completely overtrained, um, and by time of trials, I was so like t- a week before trials, my body just snapped physiologically. I just shut down. I had a I, I lived 100 metres from the beach. Um, I would walk to the beach and have to rest before I walked home. That's how bad I was, and wow. that was trials. So you know, my the, the, I got through. I knew the week before trials. That something was really wrong with my body. I just, I just couldn't go. I couldn't get out of my own road. Did the first trials was um, the Sydney World Cup. Um, I don't even know where I placed. It was the worst. Twenty fourth. <laughs> I mean, it's the only time in my whole career I was out of it. You look through all my other results, and I think there's one or two sevenths. Yeah. Um, and the rest are all top six. Yeah. Um, and, and you and, raced hundreds of times. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that one, I just, it was amazing. I just couldn't go. I just couldn't. And after that, that was it. My body was just gone after that. Like, after that, that was when I couldn't, you know, walk to the beach and back, literally. Wow. Um, and everybody knew I was, you know, the team doctor, everybody knew I was just, excuse the French effed. Yeah. Um, so that was it. it. Was It was my own fault. I'd done it. I was devastated. I mean, I was, I was you know, physiologically, it was textbook chronic overtraining syndrome. Everything. Yeah. I was, you know, physiologically, my body had shut down. I was massively depressed, 
for, for months afterwards, you know. So that was that. was that. But I think in terms of the selection on the overall team, I mean, McKeeley won her spot in Sydney. She won that race, so, so she was selected. You know, it was basically a merit-based selection. But the spanner in the works was that Perth World Champs that, you know, they ran a lap short. Nikki Hackett won it, but with a 8K run and mm. chasing hard. So, um, and Loretta was was injured. She got a discretionary spot. Um, there was some grey in the policy over that discretionary side of things. Emma appealed because she'd um, done better in that second race. She wasn't racing well at that time. She hadn't raced well in 99 either, really. Yeah. She was struggling. Um, but she appealed. It, it was obviously pretty emotional. I did appeal, but I appealed. I, I had a very low-key appeal in there because... Emma had been selected as first reserve and I was second mm. and she hadn't really hadn't beaten me since that 97 Worlds. Mm. Um, and so I, I figured if she won her appeal, I was going to go her. <laughs> yeah, nice. <laughs> um, but it was interesting. I mean, I've always been, uh, since that time, I've been quite fascinated by selection and, you know, subsequently I became a selector. I wrote policies and, in fact, um, I project managed, wrote um, the Australian Sports Commission's best practice guidelines for selection policies. So I had a lot to do with it since then. And, and you know, it's, it's really hard to get right, mm. you know, particularly when you've got the problem of, of too many good athletes. Yeah, yeah, if I wrote you, when you're at five world champs. Can I ask, what was it like watching the Olympics? How hard was that? I did. You, did, you didn't watch it? <laughs> no, no, I was in the US. Um, I, I used to spend the, the last few years of my career, I'd spend the northern summers in the US. I was over there. I'd was working part time in a in a, a gym in big fancy gym in San Francisco and no, I didn't watch it. No. I mean I knew the result, I saw what happened, but I still, you know, felt like the way the race panned out you could have, have should have would have won it. Yeah. But mm. you can't think that. It was mm. over. And and I didn't have anyone to blame but myself, so that it, it was what it was. So in, in terms of your try career, was that pretty much it in two thousand? Yeah, I tried to get back. I did a couple of races later in 2000, um, but I wasn't sure. wasn't sure, and I and Brett. I mean, again, the um, the the decision point. Again, Brett having a good conversation with me, helping me to make the decision. He said, "Come back, come back and train with me. You still have never been as good as you haven't reached your potential. Come back, give us another two years. Let's go to Com Games in Manchester." really do everything we can see how good you can be um you know let's just do that and you know in that conversation it made me think no i'm done i don't i don't want to go and live that lifestyle and he's right the only way i can keep going i I didn't want to just do it i I never was um a lifestyle triathlete i never did Mm. it because i loved it i never you know i did it to win i did it to see how good i could be um Mm. i did it to excel i didn't do it for fun Uh, and i probably arguably didn't enjoy my career as much as a lot of people did my career it wasn't even that long Mm. um it was purposeful Mm. Mm. Um, i enjoyed the the marketing and sponsorship side of it a lot um and i enjoyed finding ways to win but when brett said that to me i knew that it's not what i wanted to do i didn't want to go back and live the lifestyle of training 24-7, thinking 24-7 about triathlon with Brett. I knew that was the only way I could keep going and 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 feel like I was going, you know, I was good enough, um, but I didn't want to do it. I, th- I think I saw one, maybe one half Ironman in that career. Was there ever any thoughts of doing Ironman? No. <laughs> Simple as that. Absolutely not, no. Um, yeah, there was actually two half Ironman early on. 
or one midway through, one early on, whatever. Um, yeah. No, I, I, I just I liked I was my philosophy was go hard or go home. I, yeah. I just couldn't get my head around Sustaining. One, doing that many miles on the bike. It's boring as. Mm. Um, <laughs> You know, I like to go two-hour bike session, just hammer it, you know, hammer it with intervals. That was I was intervals, you know, go hard kind of stuff. That was what I loved. And, you know, the thought of, you know, six hours of racing and then getting off and, and running and not being able to run hard, mm. it's like, how awful is that? You know, I went and watched a couple of Ironman races and, you know, I, mean, I was – Greg Welsh was a, a great f- friend and, and mentor to me and, you know, when he said to me that the only Ironman in which he didn't walk was – the Hawaii that he won, mm. and he still ran only ran 245, which is mm. great in an Ironman, but really, mm. that's not fast running. <laughs> yeah. For someone like him, yeah. it's like, nah, why would I do that when I can race 20 times a year and make good money in every race versus race two or three times in a year and there's too much that can go wrong and too much boring training and uh, no. What, 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 people still it? say it to me. People still say, oh, Jackie, you should do Ironman. You'd be so good at it. I was like, that's great. Everybody thinks I'd be good at it. Why shatter the illusion? <laughs> nice. What, 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 were you making good money? Was it good money back in those days? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I was – I mean, I raced a lot, so that helped, but I was making – you know, just over six figures in prize money and, and similar in, in sponsorship those last five years. So, yeah, you know, nice. it, was, it was, I mean, I'd, I I probably never admitted, I never really thought about it until, although, of course, you know, knowing me, I had the spreadsheets and I tracked every dollar I made. But, um, you know, I probably in those last five years made over a million dollars in, in prize money and sponsorships, which wow, is yeah. nice for the 90s. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's nice. probably nice for today, to be honest. So. Yeah. <laughs> and, and really, for me, I mean, I was... I wasn't a genius. I wasn't, you know, I didn't win every race. You know, like Emma had that amazing period where she just won all the time. But for me, I was just consistent, you know, and I just would find ways to be on the podium. I'd run from 20th to the podium, time, time, you know, just find ways to be there. So I was I was bankable in that I was just always there. Mm-hmm. we take a quick break and we'll be back um, and we're going to talk a bit more about um, the transition from racing to uh, getting into the coaching world. Sponsor Blue 70. John, I was on the website. You were. And there's a photo of you. Problem is, you wouldn't know it was a photo of you, would you? No. So uh, when, you, when you go to blue70.com, it does default to your local uh, Blue 70 distributor or provider in your area. So ours um, pops off to blue70.co.nz. And I uh, went on there and I thought, oh, that looks familiar. And it was uh, Pete Jacobs uh, at our little swim at our, at our camp over in. Kona, and blue but John's there, but you only see his back. You do, and I've yeah. got my uh, my muscles bulging out. Some would say muscles. Belinda would say fl- rolls of flat. No, that's pretty. You, you got the muscles happening, mate. You're, you're looking mean and lean. So I've got the PZ three TX. I think I've got the Philinator next to me. He's got the PZ three TX on also. Fantastic suit. Worked the dream over in uh, in the Kona seventy point three, and I will be using it again next year as well as that Ironman. Uh, I got Pete Jacobs here. He's he's styling it as well. If it's good enough the world for the world champ, it should be good enough for, for you guys. In terms of the wetsuits at Blue 70, um, if you're not quite sure, they've got a couple of different models. Uh, the Helix is the business. That is their top-end side of things. And in terms of the key features that I like about the Helix is um, the reverse zipper is awesome. Uh, it, some people think it's really hard to put on, but I've shown in a video clip that I did up around the Auckland ITU race. that Which is, is 5 million views already, isn't 5 it? 5 million. Yeah. I should actually yeah. check it out yeah. and see how many people exactly. did, did yeah. bother to look at that. But it is, it's really not that hard to get on. And... Uh, 
really easy to get off. The other cool things is it's you know with their their premium suit, the Helix, you know, lots of different cuts in terms of the body, so plenty of movement. Really, the most flexible suit that I've ever had through, through the shoulders. Very thin through the shoulders, um, so just an awesome suit. You got the reactions, the middle suit, and then you got the fusion, which is more of the introductory suit. What you find when you go down the models, obviously the price gets cheaper, which people like, um, but you're going to la- lose a little bit in terms of flexibility and in terms of the number of cuts, in terms of the panels. Uh, so that's sort of what you're, you're losing out, and some of the materials are not as good or as as variable as you'll get with the Helix. But uh, this month we will have a, an auction for a Blue 70 Helix, so if you want to get on that, go to legendsoftriathlon.com and we will have a link through there, uh, through to eBay, you can bid away. Anyway. You look like Batman, that's the cool thing about it, but they, you know, you really, really what should, they should do is they should create swim masks mm-hmm. that it look like Batman's mask as well. Because you could be a superhero. It's a product innovation, I think, they would like to hear. I, yeah, I, I tell you about it, because I'm just looking at the Helix on this website now, and it's cool, man. It's cool looking, and it's got all, like it's got the imprint, because it's obviously there's all beads to make you go faster, and it just looks cool, man. Yeah, so if you want to get your, get your hot hands on one of these, go to uh, legendsoftriathlon.com, check on our auction. It always goes well below retail price, so you get yourself a good deal, get yourself an awesome suit, and it's uh, good for anybody anywhere in the world. They'll ship it out to you and uh, just get on it. Yeah, definitely. Blue70.com, guys, you can't really go wrong. Blue70, it's been around since day one, really, isn't it? It's one, you know, one of the first oh, yeah. companies out there definitely. innovating in the sport, and uh, the, you know their expertise comes with great products. So check it out, blue70.com. Righto, we're back now with uh, with Jackie, and I guess big changes for you in 2000. You know, you, you hung up the boots on the, the triathlon front. We can, if we've got time, we'll go into your, your running a bit more because there's some pretty impressive stuff there from what you've done post triathlon career. But you, you sort of moved straight into a, from, from the looks of it, moved straight into a role with the Australian Institute of Sport, really leading up their, um, their sort of, a, it seemed like a new triathlon program at the time. Can you can you fill us in into to how that went and and how you go from from being um, a high-performing athlete to, to straight into a high-performance coaching role when you probably don't have a lot of experience in that area? Yeah, I was very, very lucky in my timing, that's for sure. Um, at the end of 2000, the AIS announced they were going to have a triathlon program at the at the AIS, first time ever. Um and, you know, they advertised for it. And at first I looked at it and I thought, oh, geez, I don't know. Um, but I thought about it and I started thinking what I would do with it, how I would run it, um, you know, what I saw the future of triathlon. And I'd always been, you know, I'd always been the athlete's rep at international level or at national level. I'd, you know, I'd been on boards the whole way through. And so I understood that side of the sport really well. Um, you know, I'd obviously been, you know, done some media work, was really um, sort of invested heavily back into my sponsors and, and a lot of work with them and so I was pretty well rounded in what I knew of the sport I wasn't you know I didn't just race um anyway so this job came up and I applied and, and really it was the first big paid coaching job in Australia and of course all the top coaches applied I flew down from the Gold Coast with Cole Stewart for my interview in Canberra mm. and I don't think anybody even vaguely thought I should get the job I think they just interviewed me out of courtesy because they thought you know they should with mm. my my background and and I won the role on vision I, I won the role on you know really articulating clearly how I saw it how I saw the program working how I saw my role and in fact I understand they had to change the job description in order to give me the role oh really <laughs> <laughs> but and I was probably pretty naive I didn't really know what I was getting in for but um yeah I, I started the program from 
scratch and and created that. And you know, my title was head coach, and I was more um, a strategic head coach, if you like, and a performance director than so much a hands-on coach. I did do some hands-on coaching, and you know, I'd, I'd had I'd worked with some of the best coaches in in the business, and you know, been around, and was always a great observer of of coaching and athletes and you know what made people tick and all of that kind of thing so I think I had a lot to add in in that sense but my role and what I sold it to the Australian triathlon community because it was the only way it was going to work was I was there to facilitate the athletes and the coaches benefiting out of the AIS and benefiting out of the program we created and it being you know a system of supporting athletes and coaches rather than taking athletes in and coaching them if yeah, you know what I mean and yeah. that's probably why I got it because I was probably the only person who saw that and who could do that like looking back on that time what what do you see the successes you had within that program um, I did f- five full years on that program and, and sweated blood for it. I mean, the first couple of years I was pulling knives out of my back almost because, you know, it was quite revol- revolutionary for me to get it and it was a surprise for a lot of people that I would get that role. I mean, I was, you know, young, female, straight out of being an athlete, yeah, without the coaching background. But, you know, I, I, I'm very proud of the infrastructure I set up, the program I set up, the parameters, the, you know, I mean, that my first intake um, in that program was, you know, Emma Snowsill, Marinda Carfrey, Nikki Edgett, Luke McKenzie, um, you know, Paul Matthews, just that group that have all gone on to do really good things. Um, and it was just, you know, and, and not, I mean, I, it was my proposal to the ITU to um, put in an under-23 world champs and, and, and make the sprint distance for juniors instead of Olympic distance. And that mm. was end of... 2001, so end of that first year. Um, mm. So, you know, I, that was the change the world moment for me, that mm. concept and the fact that the ITU took it on. And I think it's been such a good thing for the sport. And again, that allowed the AIS program to evolve straight away into under 23s and to save the careers, literally, of people like Brad Carlefelt, um, you know, Dave Dello, that mm. kind of thing. So, you know, it was, it was pretty good times. And I worked really, really hard in that program, established the first European base for, for AIS Triathlon, and they still use that. Um, so, yeah, I was pretty proud of that, worked really hard, and, and, you know, I was able to have an influence and make things happen both at the ITU level and at, at national level in Australia. So, Australian sport's in a, in a funny time at the moment, and, and, and some people may be having a crack at them because you just guys have been just so well, successful. Oh, yeah, you're so successful for so long, and, and it's the first time we've seen a crack is probably the thing to say. And, and on the girls' side of things, you know, you seem to still have that production line going. You know, you've lost um, – you can tell us what Snowstall's up to. I'm not sure. I haven't seen her for a few years. But you've still got a nice production line there on the girls' side of things. You've got some great performing athletes. Nobody who's necessarily crushing it and, and winning all the races, but a good crop of girls there. On the guys' side of things, so maybe I don't, I'm interested to know what's happened there because, yes, Ironman, we've still got Pete Jacobs, um, Crowey Macker. Pete's sort of a bit of a an, an enigma, but the other guys are more, they came out of the 90s sort of thing rather than maybe the, the 2000s. On, on, but on the guys' side of things, you know, you haven't really got... In, you're nowhere near as dominant as you used to be. So do you think that's, um, I don't know, is it, is it an Aussie thing or is it the rest of the world just caught up? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not as close to it as, as I was. I mean, the last few years I've, I've been working across a lot of other sports in Australia, more than triathlon. I've sort of stepped away from it a bit. But, um, yeah, I've been a bit disappointed in, in the way things have gone 
with Australian triathlon for a number of reasons, but I think one of the you know, there's probably lots of factors. I think the loss of a strong domestic competition has changed things. I mean, pre-2000, you had such good competition in Australia mm. and the rest of the world would come to us, mm. you know, to train and to race. And, and you know, you had short racing where the young guys, you know, Courtney Atkinson's and, and Brad Carlefelt's and that could race amongst the, you know, the Brad Bevans and Greg Welsh's and Miles Stewart's. So, you know, you had that that just great um, – race environment that, that we don't have anymore you've got to go overseas for it um you know i think that's a big one but I, I just think we've yeah the rest of the world has caught up in lots of ways i think there's been some level of complacency probably on the part of of the australian system and, and i just think we've lost our aura a bit mm-hmm. I mean, once one time and, and certainly when i was running the as program i would cultivate that i would you know when we went to a race briefing, we'd all go in uniform and we were Australia and we were intimidating. And, yeah. you know, I would talk to our juniors about that. That's the legacy you've got. That's the way, you know, hold your head high and be Australian because people are intimidated by that. Um, and, you know, we were amongst the first to have a program like that where we all wore the same uniform and that kind of thing. I mean, everybody does it now, but I think we've lost that intimidation factor and, um, yeah, people... On the coaching front, what, what, what are the insights that you've kind of picked up on over the years on the difference between guys and girls? Um, I think guys probably – I mean, girls benefit more from individualised one-on-one training. Um, you know, I mean, that's what Brett was very successful with was, was uh, working out how to press each individual athlete's buttons and what each individual athlete needed. I mean, at one stage he had, say, me, Loretta and Joe training and we were all on completely different programs because we were completely different animals. Mm. You know, I mean, all of the stories of Brett and his huge volumes and that kind of thing. I never did huge volumes because it wasn't right for me and that wouldn't have worked for me. Um, you know, the, the amount of training I did in volume, you know, I tell people that these days and they go, is that all? But that was all I needed. That was all I did. You know, mm. I um, I think people try to do too much these days. But I think guys need need competition in training. And I think we've moved too far away from having, you know, good, big, competitive squads of guys. And, I mean, even you look back, say, to Brad Bevan, and, yeah, he was self-coaching, he trained by himself, but he was always seeking out the best people to go and train with. He would go and train with Welshie. He would go and train with... Um, with um, blessing, yeah, yeah, you know, he was always doing that, and I think that's probably we've gone away a little bit from the guys getting that really good competitive environment of of pushing each other. Do you think there's an element to, and this is a comment I got from, um, I'm not sure if you want to be named or not, but women maybe tend to want to please the coach a bit more and, and male athletes sort of like to do their own gig and, and maybe motivated a bit more by, by reaching a goal? Yeah, I don't know about that. I don't think the best woman really want to please the coach. I mean, that certainly wasn't what, you know, I mean, we always joke about back in sort of my era with McKeeley and, and Emma and Loretta, we, we were hard asses. We were, you yeah. know, we, we did it our way. I mean, Brett and I always had a love-hate relationship because he wanted to control me and I never let him. Um, you know, he'd, I had times and other people in the squad would, would, be, would be gobsmacked, but you know, there was times when I'd get out of the pool and he'd go, what are you doing? I said, oh, I'm done. I've reached the point of diminishing returns. I'm going home. Mm. No, you're not. Get back in the pool. I'm like, you can't make me swim and you work for me. I don't work for you. Yeah. you know? yeah. um, and not many people could do that. And I think the best women 
<laughs> police themselves and, and know what that's about. So, do you think Brett learnt from you? I mean, or, or did he did he did he grow from you? You know, putting saying things on you want to do things on your terms and and doing like what you said in terms of the you know I'm, I'm here to do do my gig in the swim and, and and he was it was a team approach rather than I get the sense with a lot of people with Brett it's basically you do exactly what he says and uh, and, and just total belief and, and don't question him too much. Yeah, I think we learn a lot from each other. I mean, there was absolutely no way I could have done what I did in my career without him. Mm. And and yeah, I think he. I like to think he learned a lot from me as well. I mean, we used to have, you know, regular long conversations about training and about training methods, and he would pick my brains on, you know, the, the physiology. I mean, that's what my education was. Mm. And I was arguably, you know, too conservative coming from a science background. But he would. We would have conversations about. You know, he'd say, oh, I think we should do this you know what does that mean from a physiological perspective or you know how can we i mean his use of treadmills came out of a conversation that he and i had over a couple of hours about well you know how do we take the impact out of 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 running for these people that have got a swimming background and aren't aren't as hard hardened with it and i'd done my master's degree in uh, in downhill running and eccentric loads and I was doing postgraduate work in eccentric loads when when he recruited me into the sport so you know that was an area that I knew quite a lot about and, and that led to his his use of treadmill which was quite revolutionary at the time and now so many other people use it I don't think as many other people understand the theory and the rationale behind what we did with it but you know that was the kind of partnership that we had that I think was pretty fruitful for us all and I mean you know I know even when I saw Siri, you know, I'd, I'd retired in 2001 and I went to World Champs in 2001 and saw Siri won. And she had my running style. Mm. I went up to Brett and I'm like, she's got my running style. You know, like, and he goes, well, you, you model it on the best. You know? <laughs> and he did. He's just so many things he would, you know, he, that's exactly what he would do. It was, it was weird. You know, when I was just raw, having finished and still not really, not sure how comfortable I was with it, to come out and watch a little model of me winning the world championships is like oh anyway <laughs> well, well, you know Brett's obviously a massive influence what other coaches did you use and uh, over your and you know and who were the ones that really easily responded well to and, and maybe did you have coaches who you didn't respond well to yeah well, Dennis Cottrell obviously in the pool you know again we used to have long conversations about things and he, he was the one that sort of foresaw the wheels falling off for me in, in uh in 2000 and and we had a conversation about it and he was right but I, and everything you know he saw sort of came to fruition he, he was a big one um i did a little bit of work with darren smith early on early on for him and mm. and late for me like around that 2000 period mm. um, and it's been interesting to watch him grow and develop as a coach um and he's he's come a long way which is good and he's you know he's modeled himself on brett to a certain extent but but does things differently and yeah, um. oh, I could probably could probably talk to you for hours about other coaching stuff, but <laughs> but I want I want to get onto some rival stuff. So we'll be we'll be back in, in a moment just to talk a bit more about uh, some of the rivalries um, that were going on. Sponsor. Global Adventure Guide. Oh, John, tell me about it. Well, Tour de France has been and gone for 2013, and uh, it was a bloody good event this year. But next year, it's going to be bigger, bigger than Texas. You think it will be? Well. Maybe not for the actual race, but for you guys listening, they do the global guys at Global Adventure Guide have got Tour de France 2014 cycling tour. If you want to do the full shebang in one hit, 44 days, 
Poitiers to Paris, the ultimate Tour de France cycling tour. You basically get to ride the Tour de France. Uh, it's I can't remember what year it was. Was it 2001? But they're basically recreating the entire tour and you're more or less doing it in, in double the time, plenty of time to see the sights and everything like that. Awesome, awesome experience. You've got a year to get yourself sorted. So if you want to get on that, check it out at Global Adventure Guide. Just click on uh, France when you go, come to the homepage and then it lists up all the French tours. And when I did that, uh, it basically popped up all the other things they've got available over there. A tour through the Côte d'Azur, that would be awesome. And uh, obviously through the Pyrenees and they've got tours through the Pyrenees and the, and the Alps as well. And then you scroll down a bit further and if, if this might be a bit, you know, Bevan, we, we talked earlier in the show about that selfishness when you go away on holidays yeah, and you're thinking, yeah. oh, God, you know, got to go out training, but got to be with the family as well, try to get that balance right. And I was saying, I've I booked up to go and do the, well, I'm about to book up and go and do the, the rail trail in, in New Zealand, which is just a, you know, a short mountain biking trip along the Central Otago rail trail. Pretty easy going. Doing that with my wife, who's not a triathlete whatsoever, and also some other friends who don't do any cycling at all, um, but just nice and cruisy. These guys at Global Adventure have got um, lifestyle tours, so they've got France lifestyle tours, do this elsewhere in the world. Um, just nice, looks like nice, easy riding along bike paths, along canals. They've got one down through the castles of the Loire cycling tour. They've got mm. the highlights of Provence, um, and they've got south of Burgundy. And do you know what's really cool? Like when I was in France last year, we just did one of these rides. We didn't do a tour, but we were in a place called Bézier, which is, oh, I don't even know where it was, south of France. Mm-hmm. And, and we just went and hired some mountain bikes for a couple of hours, and we rode down mm. this beautiful canal and we stopped and had lunch somewhere and it was it was really cool and it'd be kind of cool to have a like a trip like this which isn't so much about hardcore training mm. but it's you know you might do a couple of hours of easy riding a day and have this kind of fun lunch experience and then get out there and you know get on your feet and go see the other things when you're there so exactly biking's a great way to see a city isn't it and it's easy yeah you know even un- if you're unfit people can still just toodle along and uh, and it's a nice equaliser you know size is, is not such a, a big issue if, if you try to go for a run or a big hike then you know that can be a bit harder but on the bike you just doodle along and it's uh, just a nice way to see things and uh, just you feel better about yourself I mean I know we're all athletes most of you guys but for, for other people that maybe don't have athletic backgrounds or don't do competitive athletics and it's just they'll feel better about things yeah Warren from New Zealand says John I heard so much about your tours and after this experience I'd wish I'd done them earlier there you go so they must be good Warren says it it, it must, must be, be true. true so check it out globaladventureguide.com and again if you're going on there make sure you t- tell them that you heard about it through us thank you guys let's get back to the interview righty ho we're back now and I think you've, you mentioned her name a few times so we might as well um, discuss um, go for the kill go for the kill <laughs> Emma Carney because in your era you know she was the one that um I don't know, she, she, I remember, and the stats might tell me otherwise, but there was that period, as you mentioned, she just seemed um, un, unbeatable and just seemed to win everything she, she touched. But, but you certainly had the wood on, on her a lot of the times. What was that rivalry like? Because she certainly did sort of steal the limelight a bit, I think. Oh God, there was times when we just totally hated each other, but but there was always a respect there, you know. It was funny because she came from a run background like I did. We both started in... The 92-93 season. She started fairly quietly. She was younger than me. Um, I, you know, I, I did better sort of from the start. And at first, we went on a couple of running trips together in, in early 93. And we got along really, really well. And I kind of, you know, sort of took her under my wing a bit and, and 
you know, as you do for a younger athlete. And in running, there's a real sort of pecking order and you're kind of comfortable with that. And then the next season, she comes out, blows everybody away. And I had a disastrous Worlds in in 94 and she goes and wins the thing. It was, it was like my worst nightmare. You know? it, was just, it, was, it was just shocking. Um, and, you know, to see her come out and do so well, it was, it was kind of um, quite mind-blowing. But I guess because of that background – and because I kind of knew her and, and I knew I always knew I could run with her um, and I always believed I could in fact outrun her, um, I never doubted that I could beat her. And she had an aura there for a while that everybody else thought she was unbeatable. Mm. So I remember in 96 uh, racing in Drummondville, so like eight or nine weeks out from Worlds just before I started, got back with Brett and um, – we did a World Cup and Carol Montgomery and Emma had a bit of a battle and I was third and I watched their race unfold and Carol had opportunities to win mm-hmm. um, but she let Emma beat her mentally and, and got to the finish and Carol just come up to me she goes, Jackie, Emma, she's just so strong, she's unbeatable and right then and there I went, good, I don't have to worry about you for world champs, mm-hmm. you know, I only have to worry about Emma. You know, because Emma had already beaten her mentally. And, mm. I mean, Carol was a great athlete. She certainly had all the attributes there and was more talented, I think, certainly than I was. But, mm. you know, that was the, the power that Emma had and, and I guess the power that I had that I always believed I could I could beat her. Um, yeah, I mean, she she pretty well stuck to herself and, you know, her and her dad were the team and, yeah. and you know, her unshakable confidence in herself was her strength. Whereas for me, I was quite comfortable being the underdog and um, I like to, you know, find ways to win. I like to battle. You know, I wasn't as comfortable being, being, um, you know, being favourite. So we sort of came from different ways. But it was funny, like the whole, my whole career, you know, we had this great intense rivalry and, but there was always a respect. And even Dave Carney, you know, I know he always respected me. And um, it was funny, after I retired, um, a couple of years later, because I, I got married to Simon Fairweather, um, Olympic gold medalist in archery, and we were at an archery tournament not far from where Carnies live in, in Melbourne and went to the grocery store and run into Emma's mum. She's like, you know, the, the Carnies were always good at dropping the F-bomb, so she was, fuck, Jackie Gallagher, what are you doing? <laughs> like, oh, Sheila, yeah, good to see you. I was going to uh, let you guys know I was in town. So anyway... um couple of days later Simon and my first wedding anniversary and we both actually forgot about it it was a Sunday and Emma had taken me up for a run up in um in in the hills and my sister-in-law texted me and said happy wedding anniversary um and anyway we ended up having dinner at the Carney's place that night and it was just so ironic that after all those years of rivalry here we were on our first wedding anniversary, <laughs> you know, having lots of drinks and just having this we had this fantastic night. Um, and the irony was lost on none of us that, you know, here we were having this fantastic night at Carney's place. Um, and, you know, we've, we actually have a really good relationship now. We still have a good, healthy banter mm. and uh, give each other a hard time, but I, I really, you know, enjoy the relationship I have with her now. 
It must have been a bit of a funny time with regards to your other rivals because at the time, you know, if, and I'm just thinking out loud, you know, your main rivals, probably, I'm, I'm assuming, would be, would be Emma Carney and then you've got McKaylee Jones, but she was probably doing a lot in the States around the time that you were racing, but also on the, on the local scene. And then most of your rivals, probably apart from, I guess, Karen Smyers and, um, and maybe Carol Montgomery, I mean, most of them were Aussies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, you sort of, you always, we had that sort of feeling that if you won the Australian Championship, then you were capable of winning the World Championship. That was certainly true at that time. Um, But again, you know, with Makila, yeah, she was in the US a lot, but we always had a really good respect for each other. Um, You know, she just was such a great tactician and she was amazing at just getting the most out of her body and... um, you know, I always respected that, and I always felt like she respected me as well. So, you know, that was for, for a while there. In in the last couple of years, we were always ranked highly, and she would pick her place on the pontoon, and I'd all, almost invariably then line up next to her because I just knew. Usually, we'd think similarly anyway, but I just usually knew that that you know where she went would be the best place tactically. And then there was one race where I didn't line up next to her. She's rushed over to me. She goes, Jackie, did I pick the wrong spot? <laughs> <laughs> Got in her head. Hey, so, so after you finished your, um, you know, your triathlon career, you actually you kind of went back to running and, uh, and you had some pretty wicked success there as well. So what was that like? Yeah, well, I, I um, decided I wanted to run a marathon because it was totally against the whole way I approached things mentally. You know, I didn't like long stuff. It was, it was kind of boring to me. And But after you know, the physiological breakdown in 2000 and really destroying my body. The, the marathon for me was a challenge just to see if I could do it, if I could um, put in the amount of training that I would need to do it and if I could, you know, get my body healthy enough to handle a marathon. So that was really what it was about and I was only ever going to do one. Um, and I chose Boston and, you know, went and stayed with Karen Smyers and it was a really personal thing. I didn't tell anybody I was doing it. You know, I just wanted to keep running because I love that anyway. And um, Karen had always said, you know, come and visit. And, you know, I was able to get a preferred start in Boston. It's the biggest, oldest, most amazing mm. marathon. And mm. I just wanted the experience. And it just was a really nice fit to go and, and do that um, based, based from Karen's. And, um, yeah, I went there in, in early 2002, trained with, with Dick Telford. And, and still have a great relationship with Dick, another a great coach that's had a good influence on me. And, um, you know, I ran, ran uh, to 234.48, my first marathon. Wow, um, And And um, then got uh, off that, got selected for the Commonwealth Games in Manchester, so I had to, had to run another one. <laughs> <laughs> wow, and, and so and when did you find out you had qualified? Like, when did, look, you obviously done your marathon. You were just doing, did you actually have that in the back of your mind or just – yeah, a little bit. Yeah, a little bit. I mean, I sort of knew I was in shape to run somewhere between sort of, you know, 235, 240. I mean, you sort of know. You've been yep. running that long. You sort of know from your training. So, um, so yeah, it was um, it was kind of it was pretty nice to, to get that Commonwealth Games. And then I ended up running a few more and, and trying for the Olympics in 2004. So I failed in two sports, which was pretty impressive. <laughs> <laughs> Were you close to the Olympics? Yeah, it was a bit like um, what you guys have in New Zealand, the Australian standard for the marathon was higher than the IAAF standard. Yeah. Uh, so I actually ran three IAAF qualifying times within uh, really? less than 12 months. But didn't – so the Australian standard was um, 232 yeah. and I ran 232.40. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, st- did they pick anybody bit, or not? Um, 
Yeah, I think Karen McCann went. Yeah. And that was it. And she hadn't run any faster than me either, but just sort of had that, that background. You didn't have and that selection you know, I mean, criteria. You didn't have that selection policy in front of them. You should say, look, point, change the policy. 0.777.21, always select Jackie Fairweather. Yeah. <laughs> did, did, what was it? Look, oh. I mean, at that time, you know, I was, I was head coach of the AS Triathlon program. I was putting in, you know, big, big time there. I was, you know, I was, it was about other people at that stage. It wasn't about me. You know, I, I had a, you know, a husband and it was third priority in my life. And I was really, really um, satisfied with, what I had done within the context and, you know, fitting that in and doing so well. And, and realistically, look, if you can't run under 232, you're not going to be competitive. I mean, it would have been nice to go to the Olympics. But, you know, the, the thing that was the hardest to take was my husband had <laughs> retired. And, and and then I said I was going to go for it. And he said, well, I'm not going to sit in the stands. I'll try and make the team. Right, yeah, he qualified. Well, he qualified for his fifth Olympics. I mean, how greedy is that? Five. <laughs> I not get any. <laughs> What was it like winning the the bronze at the Commonwealths? Was that kind of cool? Oh, it was very cool. It was very cool. And and because I won it behind um, Karen McCann and, and Krishna Stanton, who, you know, I, uh, they were, were all around the same age. We'd known each other since I started running, 13, 14. So, and, you know, we were all in our early to mid-30s by then. And it was just, just great to be right. with those girls and, and to do that. And, you know, I'd come off the first AIS camp in, in, in France and had, had worked my bum off so you know um, Dick Telford still jokes to everybody that he did more training than I did in the lead up to that race which wasn't quite true but it's a good story um, but I remember getting to the village and just you know having five days before the race just sleeping yeah. just did it, you know but yeah it was very satisfying it was very cool and, and Greg Welsh was there doing the commentary which was really nice and you know it was just it was just it was just a really nice event, yeah. Well, before we finish up, I mean, is there ever any things that, that really get up your goat in terms of uh, that you, you haven't been asked in interviews before or anything, any really strong opinions you've got on the current state of the sport or anything like that? <laughs> I've got opinions on everything. <laughs> As you can probably tell me, we could, we could, it's plenty we could still keep talking about, but oh, yeah. no, not really. I mean, I... Um, it's it's strange to talk about it after all these years. It seems like a lifetime ago. Mm. I mean, and my role now is is much more about you know assisting other coaches and athletes in other sports to do well. And you know, it's sort of um, great to have that background and great to have the insight and to still be involved in sport to be able to assist like that. But I mean, I sort of have a philosophy that um, I don't get too caught up in things I can't change or I can't control, but I make a difference where I can. Mm. You know, and and I get a chance to do that pretty well every day is, you know, make a difference where I can. And I think if you have that philosophy, you know, you get a lot done and um, you don't get too upset about the things you can't change, I guess. Mm. Mm. Oh, it's been a real pleasure having you yeah, on. you've been fantastic, man. enjoyed, you know, because I, I mean, I was a junior during your probably um, earlier years and uh, and so followed your career pretty closely and I just love all these stats and stuff and um, yeah it was it's good time we don't want to forget about you guys through the 90s and stuff in the 80s so thanks so much for coming on the show and giving up so much of your time yeah and, it's been um, awesome um, maybe to see you at a marathon somewhere and uh, do you still do marathons? Um, I did my last competitive marathon three years ago I, I dabbled in some 100k races for a while in fact I, I won the uh, inaugural Commonwealth 100k championships a couple of years ago so but no I think I'm, I'm I think I'm pretty well done now I'm, I'm nearly 46 and I just uh, run for vanity and sanity these days did you find that hard do you, do you find that hard where you know you no longer have that carrot of trying to be your best in front of you 
Yeah, yeah, it is hard. It's hard to be to feel like you're old and slow and stiff and ugh, um, yeah, I miss being fit and fast. And um, but I just I don't. I finally, it's taken a while to peter out, but I finally don't really have a desire to push myself anymore. Mm, I'm happy good. just to go and have a, have a trot. So mm, just, just stay fit. Very yeah. good. Oh, well, thanks again for your time and um, yeah, we thanks for a, for a cool career. We enjoyed it. <laughs> Thank you. Awesome. Righto, we're back and uh, we've finished the interview. And John, that was a fantastic interview, wasn't it? Another classic. She really was, wasn't she? Like, mm. like, like, like John sent me through a link um, before the show. And, and to be honest, on the interview, there's not much history about her, is there? Like, it was it's still the 90s, so you know, the results are out there, but not many stories and yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, and to be honest, I hadn't heard of her, but I don't know much about the 90s other than a couple key names. And, mm. uh, and, and to be honest, and mainly those female, my male guys, not. Mm. the chicks and so um, but wow what a fascinating career like it was interesting because we really only kind of talked about the the key races the World Cup races and stuff like that and uh, John had the spreadsheet open next to me as we're doing and seriously guys how many races do you reckon she would have done in her career it's, I should actually look it up it's, it's, it's a big list I mean she had 43 in one year a lot of them were running races but yeah I mean some years were a lot thinner but she was she was racing a lot and, and, and as, as she said you know you look down the list and there was, was only two sevens and yeah, everything else was, and, there was and 123 one, or something and the rest were pretty much one, podiums. two, threes. and so I, I think she probably doesn't yeah, Emma Carney in that era she really had this invincibility aura around her and and I think if you actually ran the stats Torsten could probably do this for us from uh, tryrating.com is uh, uh, if you stacked her career up against Emma Carney's, I wonder if probably even. how it would stack up. But I think in most people's minds, they'd probably just assume that Emma Carney did, did better. Um, but I'm not quite sure. Um, Jackie Gallagher was was pretty legendary. And uh, and during that period, she was one of the very few people that beat Emma Carney um, more than a few times. So it was well, great. What, what's really interesting is... is then she went on to do the running. Like imagine after mm. your career to then be able to go to Commonwealth Games and get a medal. Mm. Like how cool would that be? Two thirty two is not too shabby. No, it's not too shabby. Mm. Not too shabby. Well, we couldn't do it. Mm, no, <laughs> I know. So I know. Well, if I trained really hard, I could. <laughs> Even then, that's. I think that'd be right at the very peak two, of my two career. Thirty four, isn't it? Two, no, it's two thirty six. I think it was. I don't know. Two thirty two. I'd have to commit a lot to yeah. two thirty two. But no, very very impressive. Uh, and the Australians are a good interview as well, aren't they? Because Australians are just open as a, as a mm. person, you know, like all our Australian interviews we've had on the show have been really great and they're always quite open and, you know, not willing, you know, they open up at all situations. And uh, mm. it was also interesting hearing her talk about her relationship with Brett, you know, like mm. it was, it sounded like it was a kind of a bit of a yo-yo at times, but... Very different to other relationships we hear with Brett um, yeah. because she was doing it on her terms. It was, uh, it was great. So mm. thank you very much to Jack. Righto team, so it's just back here with Bevan in the studios, so just to quickly wrap up the show, our second sponsor of today's show is uh, ExtremeEndurance.com, your lactic buffer, and it's really interesting, I remember years ago when we first took Extreme Endurance on as a sponsor, we did get a bit of shit from a few people in the audience, kind of saying, you know, you kind of sold out by going and getting a supplement sponsorship on the show, and uh, you know, they weren't that happy with it, and you know, John and I we kind of, you know, we just kind of thought, well, it's something we thought may work. And, uh, you know, evidence has shown through time from feedback we've got from you guys is that actually, you know, people really seem to get a lot of value from extreme endurance. The amount of emails we've got from people saying how, you know, once they started taking extreme endurance, they did notice that muscle soreness move away and uh, they're able to train and race a lot better because of it. And ultimately, you know, as an athlete, we're always trying to look for those edges, those little kind of two or three percents we can gain 
in our training to help us perform at our highest level. And if we can be less hurt or have less damage post-exercise, our next session will be performing better. And that's where extreme endurance can be a real help for your training and helping you become a better athlete. So if you haven't tried it, go to the website, check it out, extremeendurance.com and give it a try. You know what, if it doesn't work for you, you know, give it a month and if it doesn't work for you, you know, that's so be it. But, you know, for a lot of the feedback we've had from a lot of listeners, it's really helped those people take that, you know, those next few percentage forward in their athletic performance. So check it out, Athlinks, oh no, sorry, Athlinks, <laughs> extremeendurance.com. You know, guys, that's uh, pretty much this week's show done. So next week I will be putting out another show. Uh, at this moment, I'm not exactly sure what's going to be on that show, but you'll figure out that, that out pretty quickly. Um... I imagine it will be New Year's coming up over the next couple of days. So I hope you guys have an amazing New Year's. 2014 has been a pretty massive year for myself and for John. And um, I'm sure for you. One thing, I wrote a piece in my local paper the other day um, around what have been the top 10 events of your life in 2014. And I kind of, the whole idea of the piece was to maybe do some kind of creative endeavor that you put together as a keepsake for the future to look back on this time. And as we're heading into the holiday period with our kids and our family, maybe it's something that you could do with your kids and family or or friends and family over this next period of time is to really think of the top 10 moments of 2014 and to create some kind of creative expression of that. Uh, I know Joe and I, we've started to work on our, we've, we've identified our top 10 moments, good and bad, you know, not all of them were great. Some of them, you know, Joe's grandfather passed away. So some of those types of things were in there as well, but it's just a nice little fun holiday project to kind of create. So maybe it's something for you guys to think about when you're not training over the holiday period. Thanks for a wonderful 2014. We're really looking forward to 2015. We, um, we, we really want to try to take the show to the next level next year. And um, you're going to hear about that real soon. And uh, we really hope that, you know, we, you know, we've been doing this for a long time, but we, we really feel there's another level we want to achieve. So bring on 2015 and uh, you guys have a wonderful new year. And thank you for all your support and everything you do for the show. I am Russ. I'm Mendon. Train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha.